and good morning to all of you. I trust your hearts have been blessed already, and I hope you will stay at Matthew chapter 11 this morning as I want to preach this to you. I want to say thank you as well to everybody involved. David made mention of the fact that when we started this service, I think this is week 25, maybe even 26 of what has been a whole new reality for us. And a half a year now, six months of gathering either in our homes. For the last month, we have had people gathering down at 30 Aldershot Street, and there's a group of people that are gathering here, and then there's all of you at home, all kinds of adjustments. And through that, there are so many things that maybe many of us don't see and recognize. All of those that are involved in the technology that makes stuff like this happen, all of the different music members of the team and all those that do these things. And so I just want to say thank you to everybody. And then as we move down to uh, church and gathering, so many of you are, that are ushering and cleaning and organizing, again, I just want to say thank you. I'm going to preach this Sunday and again next Sunday, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to preach next Sunday because Lord willing, we are going to gather and it'll be so nice to sing and preach in the same room with my church family. But as I got thinking about how we could do this, I'm going to mention it in my sermon. I'm reading a book right now by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. And in the very first chapter, he references the passage that Steve read for us, Matthew chapter 11, specifically verses 28 to 30. And that's where I do want to land most of my sermon today. But I wanted to talk to you about this as a way of setting us up because I want to talk about where we are at as a church and as a people, as a culture, as a country, as a continent, as a world. And then next week, Lord willing, as we gather together, we're going to look at John chapter 12 and we're going to see the worship of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And then hopefully have the Lord's table together. Won't that be nice? But today, I want to focus on this. If I was going to put this entire thing into a sentence, my title for the day is Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. Jesus gives us a warning to heed. He prays a prayer that's meant to empower. And then he offers an invitation that I want to plead with you and I, wherever you are, at home, down at the church, or here even in these offices, to accept. C.S. Lewis wrote this statement, and it really sums up this passage. Christianity, if it is false, is of no importance. If it's true, then it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now, now catch that. I, I think C.S. Lewis may have read Matthew chapter 11, 20 to 30, when he said that. If Christianity is false, then who cares? It's not important. But if Christianity is true, if Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Savior, if he makes a difference, if he is the creator, if he's in control of all things, then goodness sakes, it's of ultimate importance. But the tragedy is... Most of us in St. John's, Newfoundland, in Canada, in the United States, act as if Christianity is moderately important. I have used this quote before, 
Someone once said, there's a bit of debate as to who said it, but I love the quote itself. In the first century, Christianity in Palestine was a community of believers focused on a person. Then Christianity moved to Greece and it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome and it became an institution. When And then it moved to Europe and it became a culture. And then it moved to North America And God forbid, it became a business. Calvary, as we are on the precipice of a new normal, I'm not at all wanting you to think that next Sunday, life is going to be exactly going back to normal as you and I know it. We will gather. We will cleanse our hands. There won't be any handshaking or hugging. There'll be physical distancing. We've got to wear masks. We've got to be very careful with how we all interact. And for good reason. But we need to get back to being a healthy vibrant community of true followers of Jesus. You see, when these statements, if Christianity is false, it's of no importance. If it is, of, if it is true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderate, moderately important. Do you and I believe that? Is that true amongst us? I have shared with you or tried to very honestly every time I preach, when I do my daily devotions, whenever I make any appearance towards anybody, to tell you that 2020, for especially here in Newfoundland, if you think about how the year began in January with Snowmageddon, and you think about all the stuff we have dealt with from January to now, it is a different year. Over the past six months, I have received endless, countless things in the mail, endless texts and tweets, Facebook statuses, not to mention the emails and the phone calls I've gotten from many of you, my family, my friends, all of the pastors I know, many other churches. Through email and phone calls, I'm offered the latest book, the newest curriculum, the greatest new idea, the newest gadget. And more than ever now with COVID in 2020, all of these things are being offered to me, to you, to us, to make our lives better, to make our churches more relevant, to help our families be stronger and more together. By way of introduction, I want to say some things very bluntly this morning. We are a Calvary Baptist in St. John's of Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada in North America. We are the most blessed continent in the world, maybe even in the history of mankind. We are a richer people, a fatter people, a more comfortable people than ever before. And that's also true in the church. We are the most physically financially and spiritually blessed people. But to what end? We have more excess than ever before. So you would think, even in the midst of this global pandemic, even in the midst of the economic uncertainty, you would think we would be happy and content, right? But I ask you, I beg of you, look around you, how you are personally feeling, how the people in the other pews of that church are are feeling, how you at home in your living room or rec room or wherever you are are feeling. Where is all the peace on earth, goodwill toward men that everybody talks about? You see, COVID-19, in my opinion, has only made things worse, right? Marriages are struggling. In fact, if you watch the pattern of the world as, as countries come out of lockdown, application for divorce and separation skyrockets. Politics. Politics 
COVID-19 hasn't brought politics together. Politics in 2020 is more divisive, more, more polarizing. We have more protests than and any time that I can remember in my lifetime. Crime seems to be skyrocketing everywhere. Economies are, are barely hanging on worldwide. You've got small business versus big business. You've got wear a mask to don't wear a mask. You've got lockdown to herd mentality, social distance. And I actually think that's aptly named, isn't it? Because I, it, you, it was, it's meant to be physically distant, but it almost feels like we are more socially distant than ever before. Whether it's families or finances, anxiety, hurt, misunderstandings, to not even trying to understand. The whole world, I don't know about you, feels like one big pressure cooker, doesn't it? And the tragedy is it seems to be shamefully similar inside the church as outside in the world. 2020 is, may well go down as the year where we have more church splits than in the history of the church. There seems to be more sin. And what I mean, I'm not talking about the messy situations of life and the gospel that we all are called to deal with. I'm talking about more acceptable sin, more live and let live sin than ever before. We all have And we all, and we have, and we are yet still among the most miserable people on the planet, including in the church. Relationships seem to be at an all-time low, considering the amount of technology you have to stay in touch. It seems to me like we tolerate each other far more than we enjoy and build community and relationship with each other. Oh, friends, stick with me, because I know this is a bit of a kick in the pants to start a sermon. I want to say we are consumeristic, we are individualistic, and we are very me-centered. We work hard in order so that we can play harder. And yet, in North America, we are the most exhausted people in the world, even in the church. And I think Matthew 11, 20 to 30, might give us some insights into this. I don't know about you, but I've asked myself in the last few weeks, have we gotten the gospel wrong? And now, listen, I could stand here and talk about open or not to open. I realize that churches even across this city and denominations are trying to figure out, will we have church? Won't we have church? What will that look like? And everybody has an opinion. But let me tell you this, somehow in trying to understand and follow Jesus Are we actually turning into more of the first century Pharisees and scribes than we realize? Is the business of church actually making us more business-minded than Christ-minded? Could it be that all the blessings we've experienced is actually going to be a little bit of our downfall? Could it be that Canada and the United States right now is experiencing a relational spiritual judgment talked about by Jesus here in our passage, more say than countries that we often look down on and think we need to send missionaries to, like Brazil or China, Indonesia, Iran, Iraq? Does all this mean something? Does Jesus ever talk about this? Is there something we should be made aware of? Something we should be warned of? Does Jesus offer us a better way? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I want to have your attention, and I want you to know that the resounding answer to all of this is yes, 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 and yes. But what's more is that this passage tells you the answer to everything I've just described 
is not you and I trying harder. It's not me giving you the 10 things now you have to do. It's not giving you, burdening you with more things. It's to say, no, look to Jesus. Look to the Bible. You see, the Bible has a way of doing this. Did you listen to when Steve read my passage? The passage has a way of shocking you and then giving you hope. You see, I've experienced this, and I know you have, and so this is my shepherd's heart this morning. I'm concerned as a pastor. I'm concerned as someone who will stand before my Savior and talk about how I tried to example Christ to all of you. I'm concerned about the frustrations that are out there in humanity, the hypocrisies, the complaining, the bickering, the demands of others while demanding others be patient with you. And yes, it is true. We live in a culture. Some of us are watching this with me, and I'm looking at you. We are selfish, and we are sinful. But we're also hurting. We're tired. We're burdened. We're afraid. We're searching. We're needy. And the greatest tragedy of them all in all of this is that the world's answer to all of that is be strong, stiff upper lip, pull yourselves up, act as if you have it all together, smile, hang in there. And yet the noise, the message of the world is fighting and survival and watch out for yourself. And I think that's why mental illness is at an all-time high. Because you know what? For all of the talk about accepting people that are struggling mentally, for all of the things, you either see people and still embarrassed by it, afraid to talk about it, or net, what's worse, I think, is now people wear it almost like a badge, almost like to say, here's my reason that I'm crippled. So what are we to do? Where, where are we to go? Rather, to whom should we turn? And that's exactly what Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30 is all about. Matthew, who writes this, do you know who he is? Matthew is basically the epitome of Benedict Arnold. He is a Jewish traitor in the eyes of probably his family, his neighbors, his kin. He's a Jew working for Rome. He was a tax collector. And you couldn't find an honest one. The whole system was meant to be crooked. Matthew spent his life trying to take advantage of people, trying to look out for number one. And it cost him all likely his relationships or his relationships came with the string attached of you grease my palm, I grease yours. And yet Jesus comes to him and calls him to follow him and forgives him and gives him a new life and a new aim and a new purpose. And so now he writes this gospel and he's writing to his friends and his family and to those in Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazan. And he's letting them know Jesus is the Christ. And so in chapters 1 to 4, he says Jesus was authoritatively announced. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus authoritatively speaks. And then in chapter 8 and 9, Jesus authoritatively acts. Then in chapter 10, he authoritatively sins. And now, in chapter 11 and into chapter 12, Jesus authoritatively responds. But listen, for just a few minutes this morning, I want you to look at verses 20 to 30, and I really want to park at verses 28 to 30. But Jesus lovingly confronts complacency. Then he powerfully prays for you and I. 
And then he personally offers you and I an invitation. In verses 20 to 24, notice with me that Jesus warns that there's a judgment on complacency or indifference. Notice what Steve read in verses 20 to 24. You get the the hint of why this is coming because in chapter 11, verse 20, then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of of his mighty works have been done. Why? Because they did not repent. You see, if you look at this back earlier, back in the beginning of chapter 11, John the Baptist has actually sent um, disciples of his to Jesus. John is in prison. Shortly after this, he's going to lay down his life for Jesus Christ, and he's discouraged. He's a bit afraid. He's a bit, have I given my life to nothing? Does any of it matter? And so he sends this question to Jesus and wants to know, are you truly the Messiah? And so Jesus answers those doubts sends the disciples back to John and says, tell John that the blind are are able to see and the the deaf hear and, and the dead are rising from the dead. He encourages him and says, listen, you go back and tell John that I'm Christ. And then he looks at the crowd and he he asks them, what do you think of John? Who do you think he was? And and all of this and all of the time the the crowd is marveling. They're they're following Jesus. You see, this is the same crowd that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, they were amazed at how Jesus spoke as one having authority. They followed him around. They listened to him. They brought their sick to him. See, nowhere in Chorazon or Bethsaida or Capernaum do we read about them threatening Jesus. They never asked him to leave town. They didn't heckle him. In fact, I think many of them were very polite, even friendly. They came to where he was. They listened to what he had to say. And it's not even likely that many were not just polite, they helped him out. They thought, Jesus is a good guy. Jesus is good for our community. He's doing good things. He's good for the region. But listen to what Jesus says when he confronts their, their indifference. Notice what he says to them. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago, and notice this, in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? Basically, he's saying rhetorically, do you think you're you're godly and righteous? No, listen, you're going to hell. You're going to be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And then this is an amazing verse, verse 24. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment than for the land of Sodom, than for you. You see, Jesus wants to shock them and get their attention. They're complacent. They're indifferent. It's like C.S. Lewis said. It's not that they're saying Jesus is false, but it's also that they're saying Jesus is of infinite value and importance. They're saying he's moderately important. And Jesus warns the crowd. The preacher that writes the book of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto men and women once to die, and after this, the judgment. Now, judgment is not a popular topic, and it's even less popular in 2020 in a COVID world. 
We don't like to hear about judgment. We don't like to hear about hell. We don't like to hear about how we might not be pleasing Jesus. But Jesus actually talks about judgment quite a bit. The Bible talks about it a lot. But think with me about who Jesus is talking to. Jesus had done most of his miracles recorded by Matthew in Chorazin and Bethsaida and especially Capernaum. He'd healed the servant of a Roman centurion. He had cured Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. He cast out demons and healed sick people all through the region of Judah and Galilee, practically stilling disease. He raised a little girl from the dead. He restored the sight to many blind men. He cast demons out of people, including one incredible one of a man who was mute, enabling him to talk. And yet, according to this, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum would not repent of their sin and come to him. See, here's what I want you to catch. They weren't willing to admit that they were struggling. Now listen, they were thankful for the miracles. They hoped actually Jesus would free them from Rome. They wanted their life to feel a bit better. Help us. Help us, Lord. But then, listen, thank you for the help, but now let us live our lives. They went and saw him. They experienced the hype, but then they went home. They went to work. Oh, and they, listen, don't think for a second that the people being talked to in Matthew 11 aren't like you and I. They struggled. Their marriages were up and down, families just like ours, they had jobs or were looking for jobs. They dealt with disease or sickness or setbacks, relationships. Everybody there had expectations and hopes and dreams, just like you and I do. But here's the thing. These three towns were either too proud to admit that they were struggling, or they were too afraid to admit they were struggling. Which one are you? Which one am I? Either I'm too proud because I really believe I'm in control. I really believe I've got this figured out. I really believe that I will overcome whatever insecurities or inhibitions or struggles I'm having. I'll work harder. I'll make more money. I'll be nicer to my spouse. I'll be better to my kids. I'll, I'll suck up more to my boss or I'll be nicer to my employees. I'll help out mom and dad more. I'll give a little bit more to my church, or I might take up and serve in some sort of way. I'll volunteer in my community, or we're petrified. We're frozen and paralyzed by fear. We smile and we nod and we tell people we're doing okay, but maybe we're crying ourselves to sleep, or we're looking for one friend that we can be honest with. You see, Jesus here warns them that there's a judgment on those who are simply indifferent. He also says that this judgment is not based on what you do, but what you know. It's almost like he says there's degrees to hell. He says if what was done in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom had been done there, what had been done in uh, Chorazin and, and in Bethsaida and Capernaum, those three cities would have repented. You've got to realize what a shock to the system that would have been to his Jewish audience. Tyre and Sidon were the Phoenicians. They were pagans. Sodom was, was this grotesque city that had completely abandoned 
all sense of moral. And Jesus says, but the worst thing you can do is not an act, it's a disposition. And you might say, well, listen, I don't think that God is like that. There won't be degrees of punishment. Some people, I remember when I was a kid, I had pastors try to tell me that if you had heard more of Jesus, when you went to hell, hell would be hotter. And I remember as a kid and as a teenager trying to figure all that out. But as I've gotten into an, an adult, let me give you what I think Jesus is getting at. You see, it's one thing if I suffer and I didn't see it coming. It's quite another if I suffer and I chose to gamble with it. You see, it's one thing if, say, Debbie leaves me and it completely shocks me and I've tried to love her. But it's quite another if Debbie is telling me that I don't love her enough and my friends are around me going, Steve, you've got to be nicer to your wife. And I'm just stubborn. I'm going, no, 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 no. I provide for it. At least I show up. I do all these things. And eventually Debbie leaves me. I have talked to people who have been blindsided and I've talked to people that they walked into it. And the hell for the one who's blindsided is completely different than the hell for the one who should have known better. You see, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's saying their sin was worse than if they had done things. One scholar, G.A. Kennedy, said, indifference is they only, they only just passed down the street and left Jesus in the rain. You see, they had heard all of his preaching, all of his teaching. They had watched all of his miracles. They knew he was there, knew he loved them, knew that they could bring their young people to him. He was all of these things, and yet they're choosing not to listen. And because of their indifferent unbelief, Jesus says to them, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The 18th century commentator Bengal said, every hearer of the New Testament truth is either much happier or much more wretched than the men who lived before Christ's coming. And this is what he's trying to say. But then, out of all of that, with all of this amazing, shocking confrontation, then Jesus does something I find fascinating in verses 25 to 27. Because he prays a prayer that would empower his listeners. He simply prays the gospel to his Father. Look at it. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You know what he's doing? He he has just warned them, and it was an act of love. He is trying to confront them, to shock them, because he realizes some are proudly denying their need, and others are terrified to admit their need. And so what does he do? He prays. And basically he says... Humility is the key to peace, not intelligence. He thanks his father that the first step to salvation is humility. Is it any wonder in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, the very first thing Jesus says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what that means? Blessed in the poor in spirit is blessed are those who are not too proud to admit they need and not too afraid to admit they need. The wise and intelligent. You see, Jesus here is not disparaging intelligence or wisdom. 
He's not saying, I won't save anyone who's smart. He's saying, I don't save those who trust in their smartness. You see, the Apostle Paul, he was brilliant. He was likely a genius, top of his class, highly educated. He was a scholar. And when he became a Christian, he didn't forsake his intelligence. No, but if you read it in Philippians chapter 3, he stopped relying on his intelligence to discern and understand spiritual and divine matters. You see, it's not intelligence, it's intellectual pride that shuts people out of the kingdom. Intelligence is a gift from God. But when it's perverted by pride, it becomes a barrier to God. One man has written, the heart and not the head is the home of the gospel. And so Jesus continues to pray and look at it, what he does. He basically says, dependence is the key to salvation, not your ability. Because notice he says, the gospel is revealed to little children or babies. In other words, Jesus is letting this crowd, crowd know, it's not what you can do that saves you. It's what I have done that will save you. Now, my wife takes care of little babies in our home, and we have two little grandkids And the one thing I can tell you about every baby I've ever met is that the only and the full scope of their ability is found in whining, whimpering, crying, or looking amazingly cute. They can't express themselves in words. They can only cry or whine or whimper. They can't tell you if they're hungry verbally. They can't feed themselves if they are hungry. They can do nothing except be dependent You see, babies, little children, are the exact opposite of the kind of people the scribes and Pharisees and rabbis were trying to teach these three cities. They were trying to say, listen, you got to pull yourself up and, 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 and impress God with how you keep the rules, and that's how you please Him. But that's the exact opposite of what Christ is doing. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit worried that in 2020, even at Calvary Baptist or in the Church of Canada and the United States, we have Christian teachers that are trying to tell you to just chicken soup for the soul, pull yourselves up, be a better version of yourself. It's about self-assertion or self-worth. And yet Jesus prays and says, Lord, I'm so thankful that it's those who will come to you and simply say, help And then in verses 26 and 27, Jesus prays and he basically says, I'm God, I have God's authority and power, and I can save. And (laughs) Martin Luther sums up these verses, he says, here the bottom falls out of all merit, all powers and abilities of reason, or the free will men and women dream of, and all of it counts nothing before God. Christ must do and must give everything. This prayer is meant to say, stop trying harder and believe better. So he looks at this crowd and he warns them, and then he prays for them. Now, based on this chapter, if you read it, here's where I want to land my plane for us this morning. What would you think Jesus' reaction would be? Yell at them? Lay down the law? All right, I'm sick of this. Now, this is how you better live. Don't listen to those scribes and Pharisees. Let me tell you how you live. But I love that verses 28 to 30 go against everything you and I are used to. He's talking to people, real people. He created them. 
He came as one of them. He had lived for them. He was going to go die for them. Then he would rise from the dead for them. Then he would ascend to glory for them. Then he would sit at the right hand of God the Father to intercede for them. They're struggling. They're trying to make sense of life. Oh, listen, there's an element of pride in them, just like you and I. Yes, they've been selfish. Yes, they've been proud. Yes, they've taken from Jesus and yet now don't trust him. They've argued with him. Jumpins, even John the Baptist doubted him. Some are refusing to repent. Others are simply tired. They're running on fumes, likely wondering, how come I can't measure up? Why can't I keep my spouse happy? Why don't my kids love me or listen to me? Many, some of them are thinking, is God happy with me? Does God even exist? I think some of you right now at the church or online think this way. Is this life as good as it gets? Will I ever be happy? The happiness I've experienced, will it last? What if I get sick? What if my spouse leaves me or my girlfriend does or my boyfriend does? What happens if my kids fail? What if mom and dad die? What if my dream job turns into a disaster or my pastor finds out that I'm not all put together and we live under the burden and the wearisomeness of what if, what about, and how come? <laughs> and, and <laughs> oh my goodness, guys, this is why I love Jesus. He's watched his disciples miss the mark. He's had to deal with John the Baptist who doubted. He's looking in the face of a crowd that's stubborn and selfish. Religion is attacking him. People are failing him. And what does he do? He puts his arms out and says, come to me. Come to me with your burdens. Come to me with your wearisomeness. He invites the crowd. He invites the disciples. He invites you and me to come to them. In these three verses, 28, 29, and 30, Jesus tells us about how he feels about us. He exposes his heart. He says, come to me and unburden yourself. I told you I'm reading this book, Gentle and Lowly, by Dane Ortland, and I love it. He says, 89 chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet, for 89 chapters of information about Jesus, only in Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30, does he rip back the curtain and say, this is my heart. This is what makes me tick for you. And that's the greatest news of all kind. Because if people come to know the Father only through Jesus, it's only fitting for Jesus to invite them to come to him and promise that he'll give them rest. And notice, he doesn't end with judgment. He ends with invitation. He says, come to me. And then in verse 29 and 30, take upon you. He says, come and take. Are you willing to come to Jesus today and unload on him? Are you willing to come to Jesus and learn from him. He says, learn of me or from me, and both are right. Jesus is saying, I'm both the teacher and I'm the subject. Come to me and I will teach you about me. Jesus doesn't promise an escape from reality. He promises the right equipment to deal with your reality. You see, Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's not mushy and wimpy. And this is the invitation He says, Jesus' heart of gentle and lowly embrace is never outmatched by our sins and our foibles and our insecurities and our doubts and our anxieties and our failures. 
And I love his choice of words. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, is he contradicting himself? Back in the Sermon on the Mount that he, he had said he had came to fulfill all the law. He told the crowd in, in, in Matthew chapter 6 that unless their righteousness exceeded the scribes and the Pharisees. But we get an insight in Acts chapter 13. If you've been following along in my daily Devo, in Acts 13, when Paul preaches his sermon to that group of Jews and Gentiles, he says, here's what the law can do. The law can tell you you're a sinner, and that's all it can do. The law informs, but it doesn't transform. Jesus says, my yoke is easy because he's telling you that he paid for it. He's fulfilled it. He says, I give you my righteousness. I give you my love. I give you my power. I give you my spirit. You see, my burden is light because now you carry love. You carry promise. You carry hope. I'm going to give you an eternal perspective. You can carry a place and a person to turn to. No longer do you have to earn. No longer do you work and serve. Now, even when you suffer, you can carry it because you know you're accepted. Life does count. Your prayers are heard. And by the way, that word easy used elsewhere in the New Testament is the word kind. When Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted to one another. My burden is light. Think about helium in a balloon. You fill a balloon with helium and the balloon floats Jesus says, my burden is light. It actually lifts you up. So he's looking at this doubting, confused, rejecting group and with arms open wide. Says, I'm not simply willing and able to meet your need. I've come to live with you in your need. I'll always be with you. I'll never leave you. I delight to be near you. I'm living with you now. I'll send you my spirit. I'll come back for you. I'll bring you to me for eternity. That's what makes Christianity different from every religion and every philosophy. And when you accept this invitation, it brings rest. It brings rest. Jesus offers us a rest. Now, he's not saying that you and I aren't going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We find rest. Brother David will get to this in verse John chapter 3 eventually. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Well, what kind of love? That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, We are God's children. Watch this. Now. And what we will be has yet to appear. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now watch the result. And everyone who thus hopes in that purifies himself even as he is pure. We rest in who Jesus is and what he's done. You see, God loves you so much. He loves you too much to leave us in the hell of unhappiness and comes from trying to do his job. He loves you too much to leave you in the slavish misery of ladder-defined lives. Rather, God condescends. You see, there are two types of people. Two types of people are right now at the church, online, here in these offices. You're either trying to climb the ladder of morality, looking up to God, or... You're resting at the cross, watching as God comes down to you and I. 
How do you read your Bible? Is the Bible a manual for living the ladder-defined life? Or is it the announcement of the one who came down and hung on a cross in order to rescue you from your efforts of your own? You see, God's not at the top of the ladder going, climb! He's at the bottom of the cross whispering, it's finished. I love you. So stop, please stop right now and think about Christ. Do you understand who Jesus is? Jesus loves you enough to be honest with you. You see, to accept the good news of the gospel, you've got to be shocked by the bad news of judgment. Too many of you right now, and this is my burden, you're content with the Messiah on your own terms to meet your perceived needs, to get what you want. You see, many people, even in Jesus' day, thought they needed rescuing. They just didn't think they needed saving. It's the difference between regret and repentance. See, we need to understand just how bad we are, how unable we are, how burdened and weary we are, how deserving we are of the wrath of God and judgment and hell and all of these things, because then you can receive the good news. Because listen, Christians, searcher, Jesus loves you so much, he prays for you, and he prays that you'll be radically changed by him in the gospel. This is the promise that I want you to get. See, Jesus is so awesome that he delights to love, provide, protect, and empower you. When was the last time, or have you ever been amazed by the rest that the gospel of Jesus offers to each and every one of us? I know that in September of 2020, when moms and dads are about to send their kids to school, when some of you are about to start university virtually, when many of you have serve money ending and you're wondering about jobs and you're wondering about retirement and life and health and what's going to be the fall like and what will Christmas be like and most parents and spouses and siblings and friends, even preachers like me can fall prey to the illusion that real change happens when we lay down the law and exercise control and demand good performance or offer constructive criticism. But when you live life like that, you'll wonder, why does my spouse grow increasingly withdrawn? Why do my children don't call me or they do what I want, but they never seem happy? Why are my colleagues not confiding in me? Why as pastors don't congregations become relationally and emotionally more together? But in more cases than not, it's because we're feeding the deep fear of judgment. We're playing judge well, listen, as a dad or a husband, it doesn't matter how many times I tell my kids or my wife I love them if I'm posturing a sense of conditions. In Romans 7, Paul makes it clear that the law will illuminate sin, but it's powerless to eliminate it. That's not part of its job description. You can't power yourself out of sin. You won't earn God's love. You won't stop yourself from partaking in the struggle of the world. You and I are slaves to it. Christian, you won't sin yourself to grace either. You won't flirt with Jesus and learn of him. Rather, Jesus will love you from your sin, out of your sin, give you victory over sin. He'll give you rest and peace and joy and victory and perspective. So, as Martin Luther says, sin's not canceled by lawful living, for no one is able to live up to the law. Nothing can take away sin except the grace of God. And so, why is it? Why is it that we find comfort in places other than Jesus? 
We binge watch Netflix. We drink too much alcohol. We go into debt for expensive vacations. We give in to the lust of porn or a myriad of other things trying to dull the pain of life. Now, you can try to find peace in those types of things, but much of what we use to dull the plane of life doesn't exactly do it, does it? It's just the opposite. And all I want to say to you is this. Apart from the grace of Christ and the saving work of the cross, it would be impossible to convince people that the easy yoke is doable, let alone easy. But for those who live under the yoke of Jesus, there is absolutely no other way to live. So will you come to Jesus today? He loves you. He's offering you himself. The yoke and the burden are easy and light with him because he'll take yours. You can stop pretending. So you don't have to be proud anymore. Stop trying to convince everybody you're in charge. And you don't have to be afraid anymore. So if you're there at church this morning or you're on your couch this morning or in your living room or on your back deck or wherever you might be, if you're here in these offices, Steve, I want to listen to this myself. I've got to stop pretending and stop being afraid and enjoy my Savior. Because at the end of the day, hallelujah, all I have, all you have, all we have is Christ. Oh, He lovingly confronts us. He powerfully prays for us. But He personally offers Himself to you and to me. And it'll be far more easy to live life tomorrow with Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I beg of you that my friends, my family, my church, Lord, I beg of you that I would believe what I've just preached. Lord, I've struggled. I've been proud and afraid, sometimes almost at the same time. Lord, I have taken you for granted. I have known about you, but not known you. So, Lord, whoever we are and wherever we are, I pray that the power of the Word of God would now penetrate my heart and ours. That if anyone is out there and they don't know you, that they would feel safe and confident and compelled to write or to send a message or to call or to say, somebody help me, so they can know the power of Jesus Christ in their life. And I pray for Calvary Baptist and my church family, those online, those here at these offices, even, even the ones that are going to play and sing right now, I pray that none of them are exempt from the Holy Spirit saying, have you given me your burden have you admitted just how weary you are? Lord, I pray that the people down at church would not leave too quickly before they can talk to someone or pray with someone or admit, man, I, I need to believe more about Jesus. Lord, wherever I am and we are, help us to see how much you love us. And may that motivate our response to you. In Jesus' name, amen.